The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts. Because you don't know what you don't know. Is your agency or company looking for helicopter training? Or maybe someone to come audit your program? How about a standardization and safety check? Or maybe just an annual FAA refresher? Look no further because SR3 Rescue Concepts has what you need. They are here to help your program succeed, to keep you up to date with the current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is top-notch, with certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crewmen that can provide training in rescue, tactical, and firefighting operations, as well as night vision goggle use and more. As part of the Petzl Technical Partner Program, They can also provide personal protective equipment inspection courses and training on the highly specific Lazard made specifically by Petzl for helicopter use for cliff rescue operations. Another great advantage of SR3 Rescue Concepts is they go beyond the helicopter world. They have training programs for high angle mountain rescue and their tactical medicine training program, which is structured around fundamental training for tactical combat casualty care and tactical emergency casualty care. To top it all off, they offer a safety audit program, a third-party review, fact-based and unbiased, to ensure any operation is functioning as safely and efficiently as possible. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Again, that's sr3rescueconcepts.com and over on Instagram at SR3 underscore rescue. That's on Instagram at SR3 underscore rescue. You just make sure when you send them a message, you tell them Quinny sent me here and they will certainly take good care of you. So my next guest, what a great time it was to have these guys on. From Las Vegas Metro Police Department, They have a very unique area as to where they are conducting search and rescue. Um, You know, you get people that bounce in through Las Vegas all the time. Lots of tourists, lots of travelers. You know, it's it's Vegas, baby. And, And everybody likes to go there. And next thing you know, you're out in mountains and hills. But not only are they dealing with some of the tourists that come through and the visitors and the guests that come through there, they also help the local community. And that's one of the stories that they get into now with, with this. This case is, is very, it's awesome. And it, I was really intrigued and, and it was a great time having the two of these guys on here. We got to experience these guys as a team. So not only do we have the pilot here, we also have the air crewman here. You know, the guy on the ground and the guy that's flying. So you hear both aspects from pilot side and aircrew side. It's awesome. So without further ado, allow me to introduce to you Dave Callen and John Thayer. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Fantastic. All right, gentlemen, welcome to The Real Rescue Podcast. I appreciate you guys coming on. So I've got the Las Vegas Metro Police Department guys. Uh, Actually, Dave, you are retired. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. And, And John, you're still in kicking ass, taking names, right? Sure. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Hell yes. <laughs> well, thank you guys for coming on. So Mr. Dave Callen and uh, Mr. John Thayer. Um, Dave, if you'd be so kind, just introduce yourself to everybody out there and then tell everybody who you are, where you come from, what you've done, and so on and so forth. Yeah, man. First of all, thanks for having uh, both of us on here. Um, Heck yeah. Really to, to be on your show. So thank you. Um, so yeah, my name is Dave Callen, and uh, I did uh, 20 years with Las Vegas Metro Police and retired as a sergeant out of the air unit, uh, one of the pilots. Um, about two-thirds of my career I spent in the air unit, um, and during that time I was a certified flight instructor, so did a lot of the internal flight training and uh, a lot of the rescue training uh, as well. Um, I'm a current night vision goggle instructor, and uh let me see what else I was the when I left I was the chief pilot of external load operations so did all the 
uh, long-line employee certification stuff under Part 133 with the FAA. Um, and uh, basically, during my time there, did day-night rescues in the MD-500, uh, the Huey, and the H-145 hoist rescues, and uh, also a little bit of fast rope and short-haul stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Quinny, thanks for uh, setting this up, and Dave, thanks for reaching out and, and uh, I guess, dragging me along for the show. But um, uh, John Thayer, I've been on the departments now for 15 years. Heck yeah. Um, and uh, uh, about eight years with search and rescue and air support. So basically everything Dave said, I did just in the, on the back side of the ship. Uh, so we'll just leave it at that and make it easier, but no. Um, so eight years uh, with that. Air crew all the way. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to no, It's just the pilots just get us there. That's all they're good for. So. <laughs> hey, they're going to be drones on the ground here shortly. What are you Eventually, yeah. Very, very, very soon. Just kidding, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, 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 Dave. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. You're not, you're not, you're not, honestly, I can't argue with that. At some point, it's gonna happen. So it is what it is, man. I'm just lucky I got in before it all went down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but uh, anyways, um, so an advanced EMT uh, with an expanded scope of practice for all that. Um, in the on the SAR side, you know, we're responsible for all the high angle. Uh, rope access stuff. Um, we do all the dive uh, search and recovery out at Lake Mead and some of the man-made lakes here in town. Um, we are the tactical medics for our SWAT team. So anytime the SWAT team goes out, we're attached to them. Um, uh, with that being said, we have a very large cadre of volunteers who come out and help us. So mountainside, we've got about uh, 10 vo uh, volunteers Within that group, we've got an additional seven uh, lead climbers who uh, will do kind of the, the top to bottom, or I'm sorry, bottom to top rescue. Uh, the mountain rescue folks are the top to bottom folks. Um, and then we have cool. probably 15 um, physicians and paramedics uh, from throughout the valley who assist us with the attempt stuff, so the TACDOC stuff. So every time we go out on a, a, a excuse me, a SWAT mission, we have a for the most part, a, a doctor with us at all times. So I, you know, some type of right there, direct line, medical, uh, medical direction um, and higher level of care. So, and then on the dive side, we have, um, you know, probably seven volunteers who are all instructors for the Valley. Uh, so they're all, you know, PADI certified instructors and in all the different uh, uh, categories. So uh, we are all for the most part on the officer side up to a public safety diver level. So, nice. uh, yeah, so we, we run a gamut of responsibilities. Uh, there's only seven of us with one uh, one commission sergeant, so there's eight total. Um, so we do stay very busy. Uh, prior to being in search and rescue, I was in the detective bureau for two and a half, three years. Um, didn't wasn't really my cup of tea. So uh, I always kind of wanted to come to the SAR side, basically since I got on the department, uh, and that uh, that was able to to happen about eight years yeah. ago. Nice. And, and, you know, that's something that a lot of people actually don't know and or talk about is that, um, you know, within different agencies, and this is Coast Guard, this is policemen, this is uh, firefighters, we all have different areas. And all of a sudden, you guys are police first, but you're search and rescue as well. So there's a whole unit, you might see police on the side of the, the side of the helicopter, but you're going in to save lives. And mm -hmm. there's not enough recognition about that in any field. So hats off to you guys man that's awesome yeah it's it's good stuff it's it's not police work anymore that's for sure no i was, no, no, I was it's, excited it's, uh, one of the few times that people were actually happy to see the police yeah right <laughs> yeah. hey it's the police they're yeah. here yay <laughs> yeah yeah because normally i mean you know you, you know you guys know how it is in rescue work it's pretty much always somebody that's having a bad day but mm -hmm. uh, you know the normal person that you contact in police work is usually having a really bad day and if they're a criminal, they're not happy to see it. And if they're a regular citizen, they're not happy to see it because they're either the victim of a crime or they got pulled over or something. So it's just, you know, you're never really happy to see the police. Uh, but in this case, in most cases you are, I would say, at least in the rescue side of the house. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. You guys have some good background. Um, now, Dave, let me start with you real quick. Uh, and actually, I appreciate this too, because both of you guys are on here and it's very rare that I have two guys from a, a case together to talk about it together. So I'm, I'm pretty psyched at this right now. Um, so Dave, give me a little background about you. How did you get into the rescue side of it? Like what made you wanted to do it? And, uh, and what was your first case that you remember? 
Yes, yeah, a great question. I so my dad actually was uh, a member of the LA County Sheriff's Department, and he hired on as a regular patrol officer, and then eventually went into their air unit, uh, which they called Aero Bureau back back then. Um, and then he flew patrol, and then he flew rescues uh, up until he retired. So. Uh, my mom actually was also a dispatcher in California and then eventually uh, became a dispatcher call taker for Las Vegas Metro Police. So um, for me, it kind of was like in the family. So I really just wanted to follow in my dad's footsteps. I always wanted to be a cop and had a, a really deep rooted love for flying as well growing up. And Sweet. So I, I hired on and, and I did my first seven years in patrol as a patrol officer and you know, 100% hired on to be a cop, to be a street cop. And I loved every every day that I was a street cop. Uh, but the, when the opportunity came to test for the air unit and go, you know, be a pilot and get to kind of do the best of both worlds, you get to be a pilot and you get to still do police work uh, from the helicopter. Uh, I tested and I was fortunate enough to get picked up. So, um, yeah, the, the progression kind of went from there. And then once I got in the unit um, and I kind of got exposed to the guys that were doing rescues at the time um, and had a lot of admiration and respect for them because it was kind of like the highest level of, of flying and, and training and experience and all that stuff within the unit. Uh, so just kind of set my, my sights and my goals on that and was able to kind of work my way up and get into that stuff and did it for several years. So um, yeah, but you know, kind of the coolest part about that for me is being able to sit back and talk to my dad and, and kind of, you know, bounce stories and, and stuff and things that I did, things that he did and they're actually very That's cool. awesome. They're not, yeah, between the, the, the difference in time, several years, yeah. obviously, but it's cool because they're, they're actually a lot similar. You know, what we talk about yeah. it hasn't changed and all that much. Equipment's better, aircraft's better, some techniques maybe, but for the most part, it's the same. So it's kind of cool to talk to my dad about what he did back then. Um, and then as far as, so my first, my first rescue, actually, this will make you laugh. So, Oh, uh, that's killer. The, the progression the progression when I went through the rescue training program was you went through 500 rescue training first. And, um, a lot of the rescues that we were doing back then were like one skid type rescues in Red Rock Canyon and places like that, where they're real confined, uh, day and night operations where, you know, we fly in, put a skid on the rock, you know, guys like John are getting in and out with gear, loading bait, uh, victims and, and, you know, um, all the equipment and all that stuff. So, you would go through the 500 portion of the first, get signed off, and then you would then transition over to the hoist rescue part and do it in the Huey. So I went through my day and night 500 training and was just about done with my Huey rescue training. And it's funny, like when you get first signed off and, and you guys probably can, can relate to this, but as, as a new rescue pilot, you're sitting around and just waiting for the first one that you can actually go out and you're just like, you know, locked and cocked and ready to go. So I'm, I remember like, they were getting a lot of rescues during my training. And I'm like, oh man, like as soon as I'm done, man, boom, tomorrow is going to be one. And then I, I finish and nothing, like it dries up and it's like weeks go yeah. by. Just it's like silent. Yeah. There's like no rescue. So I'm just sitting there. chomping So finally, finally this call comes in and it's in Red Rock Canyon. And uh, it was on a, a peak called Turtlehead that, that John, you know, is going to laugh. It's, I mean, you get a ton of rest. It's one of the frequent flyer places in Red Rock. So anyway, you know, so first, what, uh, wait a minute, what, what is that place? Cause I'm not familiar with it. So is it a, a standard tourist spot? Everybody goes out there, gets stuck or what? Yeah. So in Red Rock Canyon, it's a, uh, it's, I think it's this John, the second most uh, popular climbing um location in the united states so you get a lot of technical rock climbers and then you get oh nice regular people that are out there okay. there's a variety of train i mean you can go out there with two and three year olds and just walk some easy trails and then they have like super super you know super steep several thousand foot vertical walls that guys go out there with gear and they climb so there's a little something for everybody. sick but turtle oh, that's cool. specifically is a hike to a peak uh, of this this you know little mountain and a lot of people go up there and a lot of people end up going down the wrong way. And if you go down any way other than the way that you went up on that hill, then you eventually get ledged out and you get stuck, right? So, um, it, you know, it's a place where we get- Oh man, awesome. So yeah, a call comes out, turtle head, and I'm like, oh, I'm all excited, you know? So like nervous, get the helicopter out, like get as much info as we can, jump in there with, with my co-pilot. And uh, 
we launch and we're flying out there and they're sending guys on the ground as well. And, um, just get out there and they load, they became located. They were back on trail and they canceled the whole thing. <laughs> so literally like, I was oh, no way. yeah, like I was all excited, like flying out there. I'm going through my head. I'm like, Oh man, you know, like if I have to do a one skid or if I have to do a tow in and like, I'm thinking where the winds are and if they're on this side of the mountain, which way am I going to come in and based on the terrain and all the times I went out there with other guys and training and everything. And I'm, I got all this stuff going through my mind. And then literally like, just as we arrive overhead and we're in the area, they call us. They're like, yeah, we're landline with them. They're back on the trail. Nobody's injured. Like we're talking them down. Like you're good. You guys can cancel. You can go back to the hangar. And I was devastated at that. <laughs> oh. yeah, so, yeah so I, I ended up flying hey life saved check that yeah, box yeah well it went in my logbook oh, but not as a rescue that one didn't count but yeah technically that was the first one i launched on and uh it's good for a laugh you know what? i like that yeah we're, we're gonna go with that and we're gonna leave yeah. it at that that's how yeah, awesome. no, there, I like honestly that. yeah I, I, I say we leave it at that because it's the entertainment value of that is priceless Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John, what about you? Where are you from? Give me the whole rundown and then your first case. Sure. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So <coughs> I got a frog in my throat. So I actually, uh, became a police officer, uh, in 06, uh, originally from, uh, Michigan, but, <coughs> um, so, Grew up in Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Uh, my dad was a reserve with the Detroit Police Department. Uh, my grandpa was in the military. Uh, the reason that kind of, what really pushed me into law enforcement though was we had a family friend who was killed in the line of duty back in Michigan. He was, uh, he was actually shot and killed in an interrogation room because of a, uh, of a, uh, a poor search on a suspect. So uh, that happened. What? Yeah, that would happen. I was in high school and that happened. So that kind of, that kind of solidified my, my path. So I knew I knew it already kind of wanted to do it. And then that happens. Like, yep, that's, that's what I'm doing. So, uh, so fast forward. Holy cow. Yeah. Uh, uh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That, that's gnarly. That's gnarly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, hey, John, what, what, what was his name? Can we just give a shout out to him and the family. What yeah. His name was uh, Chris Wooters. He was a detective with the Warren, uh, Warren police department. So yeah, uh, he, uh, still, we're still, you know, family friends with the family. He's got a son that's a little bit younger than me. Um, so, uh, yeah, he was a great dude. You know, he was, he was a guy that coached his kids football team, very involved with his family. So it was, it was, it was unfortunate. Uh, and it was, and it was a, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to get too much into it, but you know, it was a, it was a bad search and that's what led ultimately led to Chris's death. He was shot and killed in an interrogation room. So, you know, something that, something wow. that you wouldn't expect to happen, happened. Yeah. Kind of the worst case scenario. So, so man, man. yeah. So sorry to kind of bring no that way. a little bit, but hey, that, um, hey, hey, we all have a way to get started. Uh, mine was nothing like that, but I appreciate you telling me. Yeah, no worries. Absolutely. So, um, so anyway, so fast forward to 2006, got hired on with, with Metro. Um, you know, I did, I was, I kind of took a little bit of a different career path. Uh, I finished up the Academy, uh, was put on what's called a saturation team out here, which is a proactive, um, just street team. All you do is you're going out car stops, person stops and high crime areas, just, just dealing with, you know, the worst of the worst for the city. So did that for, uh, probably about a year, uh, from there, we started the Homeland security saturation team, uh, with one of the former SAR sergeants, Gavin Vesp. He, uh, he was my sergeant with that. So we started that team up, did that for about a year. Same thing. It was, uh, you know, kind of strip corridor, high visibility stuff. Uh, and then uh, from there, I went into uh, our counterterrorism section. Um, so I did that for probably about three years in the detective bureau. Got to do some really cool stuff with there. Uh, did some work out in DC for a handful of months. Um, so like I said, it was good, but it, just, it wasn't, it wasn't my cup of tea. I, I, I kind of always known I want to do the, the SAR side. I actually met one of the uh, retired SAR guys when I was in field training. Um, that really got the bug planted for me. So I went through, I did all my, my medical stuff, got all that stuff done on my own, got a lot of my dive stuff done on my own, uh, had Good the opportunity to test for the unit and, uh, got in. Yeah. Um, so got in the unit, uh, in, was it 2012, 2013, I can't remember. Um, and I was fortunate enough to start with a, a friend of mine. He, he got on about a month prior to me into the unit. So, um, him and I were kind of going through training together. So, you know, it made, it made training fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how fun it can be when you're, you're, you're fucking information down like 
you know, fire hose, but yeah. uh, uh, one of my training officers was actually Dave Van Buskirk. So I got to, I had the privilege to work with Dave for basically my, you know, first year in the unit before uh, he had his accident. So, um, you know, it's, it's cool to have had the opportunity to work with him and, and, you know, take a little bit of a lot of the information he had in his brain and still kind of push it out there. So um, uh, within the unit, you know, obviously now I'm the, the, senior everything yeah <laughs> senior hoist yeah, operator senior medic uh senior trainer yeah I, like i said just a knucklehead who's stuck along <laughs> uh stuck around long enough so yeah. um to learn but, every uh, position yeah, as far as the first rescue goes yeah yeah right <laughs> so yeah. i guess i get you know whatever whatever it's worth um but now uh as far as the first rescue goes the one that really sticks out in my mind uh, I was doing my, it was crew chief training at the time in the, in the Huey, uh, basically the hoist operator training. Yep. And, uh, we had a call out at Turtlehead, broken ankle. Um, so, uh, I swapped. So same with, place as Dave. Yeah, so you guys are place, both going to the same place for your first oh, yeah. case. Oh, this same is place. fantastic. Yeah. No, what? You guys are like mirrored. This is great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he, he, he's, he's much prettier than I am, but, um, uh, so uh, he's got a spunk beat. Somebody on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually did. Yeah, it was like I said, broken ankle, probably about two thirds of the way up. Swapped out hoist operators, got lowered down with another senior guy, and we, you know, packaged him up and, and sent him up. Uh, that being said, however, I don't know if Dave remembers it. So we we got a call out at uh, Gold Butte um, Whitney Pocket area for a stranded motorist. And this is right after Dave had gotten signed off. So I think that this may have been his first actual live load rescue. Oh. We, uh, we flew out. I remember flying out with Dave out there, flying the roads <laughs> and uh, just looking for this. It was a stranded motorist. It's, it's a big, it's a big off-roading place out there, you know? So, but okay. they basically gas and it gets confusing back there. So we, you know, long story short, we, we locate him, land. I load him in the back and Dave flies him off to the CP and, and that was, and that was that. So I don't know. That's what I qualify as Dave's first actual rescue. So <laughs> nice. Uh, it's all good. A little search, a little landing, a life yeah. saved. That's yeah. two, Dave. Life That's saved. two. That counts. Right. It counts. <laughs> I'm going to count it. I count it all. I'm good. <laughs> Thanks, God. Dude, that, that's awesome. Very nice. So I, I'll be back up a little bit. So the, the guy, you said twisted ankle on uh turtle, turtle head. Is that right? Yeah, it was a uh, broken ankle. Yep, yep, yeah. And I, I, I couldn't tell you the extent of injuries. I mean, again, this was I was in the middle of my training, so it was like, oh god, there's an ankle. It's it's hurt. Let's just splint it and get out of here. Nice. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. make it quick. Load and go. Well done. Sweet. Well, uh, I appreciate those stories for sure. And and the reason I'm, I asked you guys to come on was specifically for this one. So. Dave, I've had an opportunity to talk to you a little bit about this. John, this is the first time you and I have really gotten into this. And um, Jason Connell, who is another friend of mutual friend of you guys, is uh, he's the one that sent this to me. He's like, dude, you gotta you gotta talk to these guys because this is pretty pretty awesome. And I was like, oh man. Well, I'll tell you what. When I read this write up, and it wasn't a write up. Let me let me rephrase that. This is a letter specifically from the doctor uh, for the case. This case you guys went out to. So I'm gonna read the letter and then I'm gonna ask you like. How the heck did this all happen? So, all right, you guys good with that? Oh, yeah. Yep. From the University of Las Vegas School of Medicine, dated January 9th, 2019. Dear Las Vegas Metro Police Department Awards Committee, I am writing this letter of recognition for the heroic team of officers and volunteers, including Pilot Sergeant David Callan, Co-Pilot David Brooks, Search and Rescue Sergeant Chris LeBlanc, Search and Rescue Officer John Thayer, Resident Officer Jay Snook, Resident Officer C. Eaton, and Volunteers Mike Ward, Josh Tully, and Ross Seibel. They were involved in a search and rescue of two trauma patients we received at the University Medical Center in the early hours of January 1, 2019. Both victims suffered multiple injuries as a result of a significant fall, worsened by exposure to the cold mountain environment. The quick action taken by your officers and volunteers to locate and rapidly evacuate these serious injured victims saved their lives. The first patient arrived critically ill, but alive, suffering from hypothermia with a core body temperature of 88.6 degrees Fahrenheit, with a punctured lung, a pelvic fracture, liver, and kidney lacerations. 
I was the receiving trauma surgeon, and he required intensive care with multiple procedures, blood transfusions, and rewarming to stabilize his condition. The second victim's injuries included a spine and pelvic fractures. This is a tribute to the high level of training and expertise of these individuals as they protect and serve the community in face of danger on a daily basis, putting the lives of others before their own. I would personally like to thank and highlight the well-earned recognition to the officers involved in saving the lives of these two young men by rapidly locating and evacuating them to the trauma center. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to contact me directly. Sincerely, Allison McNichol, medical doctor. Dude, this is this is awesome. So give me a rundown. Like what? So you guys get a call for two kids that fell. Is that is that what I'm gathering with that? Yeah, so, and this was interesting because it occurred on New Year's Eve, and New Year's Eve in Las Vegas is is a it's a massive undertaking because of the event that occurs on the strip down there with the volume of people, and so the agency actually spends the better part of the entire year planning for this one <laughs> event every night, and it's it's oh Las Vegas, it, yeah, it's I mean it, it's crazy, and they do a phenomenal job dealing with it, and. Yeah. Essentially on New Year's Eve, everybody works New Year's Eve. Nobody gets New Year's Eve off in Las Vegas with it, Metro. So if you're you know, normally off that day or if you're in the detective bureau, everybody puts a uniform on, goes down to the strip and works that event. So in the air unit and in search and rescue, everybody's working as well. Everybody is uh, separated into certain areas of coverage. So we have some of the guys uh, in SAR that are down there as um, the medical tactical medical element um, to respond with SWAT. And we have the, the search and rescue pilots and uh, SAR officers, uh, a contingent set aside just for rescue response. There's guys that are set aside to do fast rope insertion with SWAT. If something goes you know, sideways down in the strip, um, you got two helicopters flying patrol all night. So it's, it's busy. And wow. so this night it was near Z. 2018 so december 31st 2018 and we had the fbi was actually there with their hostage uh, rescue team supplementing us for security of the city this was the second year after the one october incident so uh, fbi hrt had come out to assist us as they had the previous year so it was well, about- that was nice of them yeah, have a little support from FBI. Huge, tremendous asset, those guys. Um, yeah, and they are just phenomenal stand-up people. So um, we got awesome. to know those guys pretty well, and it was their second year out there. And one of the guys in particular, one of their pilots, uh, is a guy um, named Daryl Jelinek, who goes by Jelly. So Jelly's become a good friend of mine over the years, and Jelly was in my office. It was about probably 12, 15, 12, 20. So the, um, we had just crossed into the new year. And I don't want to say you start to kind of put your guard down, but everybody's always concerned that it's going to be some sort of a, um, a mass casualty incident just prior to or at midnight. And so now it's right, just right. past midnight and everybody's thinking, okay, this, this so far has gone off pretty well. So it's not that we're putting our guard down, but, um, you know, we're hanging out in my office and Jelly and I were talking some, you know, flying stuff and just having a cool conversation. And this call comes in and the details said that, there was a, I believe he was 14-year-old um, male on the phone with our dispatcher, called in and said that they had climbed up on the back or the top of a hill that's on the far southwest portion of, of the Las Vegas Valley. Um, there's a hill right there uh, called Fossil Mountain, and on the back side of that is a small town called Blue Diamond. Well, these kids lived in Blue Diamond. They hiked up to the top of, of this hill, Fossil Mountain, so that they could watch the fireworks display from a distance over in the city. Uh, at midnight. Sounds like something so, I would do. Awesome. Yeah, me as well. So um, the kid that called in said that he had gone up there with his friend and his friend had fallen a, a pretty significant distance and that he could hear him way, way far down below moaning and that he was severely injured. And, you know, he was, was trying to look over and see him, but he couldn't quite see him, but he could hear him. Um, and so they were saying, hey, we're going to stay on the phone with these guys or with this kid. We're going to try to get more information. So that was pretty much all we had when we launched. Um, we knew where it was. 
the biggest consideration was that it was at night and it was windy that the winds were gusting to about 35 knots. So the, the winds were howling. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And normally we would have taken the H1, uh, the H145 um, for the rescue, but the H145, you know, for the hoist uh, portion of, of its capability was dedicated down there for um, SWAT and fast rope and all that stuff. So it was, it was not an option for rescues in this specific case. So okay. we were going to have to take the 500. So um, we gather all the info, we get everybody together, uh, do a brief, we look at the weather, made a decision that it was, it was you know, safe enough for us to at least go out and make an attempt. Uh, so that's what we did. So we loaded up um, and it was, I believe it was myself, uh, Dave Brooks was my co-pilot. And then John, you were in the back um, as a single rescuer, correct? Nice. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so we flew out there and yeah, the winds are howling. It was, it was really nasty conditions. And um, as we got to this mountain, we could see a light at the very top of it, kind of frantically moving back and forth. And so the assumption at the time was that that was the kid that had called in and was still on the phone with our dispatcher. And he was, yeah. you know, down somewhere below where that light source was, was where his friend had fallen. So um, we, we climb up there and, we could see this person going back and forth. Uh, we did a, a hasty search down below, couldn't find the kid. So we climbed up and thought, okay, well, you know what we're gonna do? I'll do a one skid up there and I'll put John out. John can make contact with this kid and try to get some real time good intel on where he was when he fell and try to find out exactly where he is so we could drop down and locate him. So we get up to the top of this ridge. It was kind of like a, a sharp, kind of a razorback type ridge line. Uh, and the wind is just blasting up the side of it. So Flew in there, uh, tried, I don't know, maybe three or four times to get a skid on a rock so we could put John out. And uh, we just, it wasn't safe. It was so nasty. It just wasn't safe. So, uh, so you're bouncing we, around, even though you're trying to get the skid on the on the rock. Yeah. Just from the wind. Yeah, just from Jeez. the wind. So, um, and I remember at one point we did actually get the skid down on the rock and we were considering putting John out. And within, I don't know, four or five seconds, we just got blasted right off the top of the, like, couldn't, couldn't even stay on the top of the rock. It was so nasty. So I uh, just made a decision that, Hey, you know, we're not comfortable trying to put John out um, in these conditions. So uh, we're just going to come back down and start looking for the victim. So um, at that point we had kind of a general idea of there was a super sheer vertical rock face wall that, led from the very top where this, this person was with, um, with their phone straight down below about 110 to 125 feet, kind of on average. And then there was a shelf and then it continued to drop down and there was some more step downs until it got down to the, to the Valley floor. Um, there was cow. some folks on the ground that had responded as well. And, um, one of these people had a thermal imager camera of some kind. So we were struggling to try to find the kid that fell. One of the guys on the ground said, hey, I've got a hot spot that I located um, up on this first shelf that was about 110 feet below the very top. And he kind of- How far above that is them? Like, if you're telling me that they're below that shelf, so they've got a thermal image of them above where they yeah, are so and below where you are. Probably, I don't know, John, what, a few hundred feet, maybe something like that? Um, from, I would say, no, nah, not, not, he was probably, Chuck was probably- 100 feet below where the kid was and oh, then, he hiked up there yeah correct yeah, yeah that's right so yeah so uh john the guy that had the thermal imager he had hiked up as far as he could but really couldn't get up any higher at that point so he he got okay. fairly close to where this shelf was but couldn't continue because it was so steep okay. um, so he was able to describe to us where this heat source was so we kind of worked our way in there and um we were maybe 10 or 15 yards away from the shelf, just kind of hovering there. And we see, we see this kid laying on, on, on this, you know, area terrain that wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't super big, um, pretty narrow, but a long yeah. shelf. So we see him laying there and his body position was such that we were fairly certain that he had not survived, you know? So right away, we're just like, man, this wow. is going to be a body recovery. You know, this kid, I believe they were both, uh, if I remember right, I think they both, we're supposed to be 14 at the time. So we're like, man, this, this sucks. Um, yeah. We were hovering there and John and I were having a conversation because it was so tight. We were trying to figure out like, man, can I even get in there and put, put the skid down somewhere to where he would be able to get out and, and, you know, 
work. And um, so we're having this, this conversation, just trying to bounce ideas off of each other. And what about this spot? What about that spot? And then he starts to move. The kid starts moving. The and, kid and on the rock starts the moving. Kid, the kid on the rock that we're looking at that we oh, more than likely, you know, deceased starts moving. And then he sits oh. up. Oh, oh so man. Okay. Okay. For, for all intents and purposes, it, you know, like just because when you see that, like for your mindset changes, it, it's like an instantaneous, you're looking at somebody like, Oh, it's a body recovery. You're going to take your time. You're you, we're just, we're going in to get a body to now. Holy shit. This kid's alive. We have to we, like all of a sudden it's a hurry up mentality and you have to put yourself in check at that moment in time. If you don't dude, yeah. that, that's, okay. That's honestly the, the couple times that we've, discuss this rescue in particular that's one of the points that we've always brought up is that some people will say oh well you know we we operate the same regardless of them and and, and i you know i respectfully disagree um, yeah everybody I, has a human human factor that, that kicks in it yeah, yeah go ahead know, we're, we're all human beings and especially yeah. you know there's a difference between if somebody says hey there's a there's a, a six-year-old with an open femur fracture bleeding out up here on the rock. I'm not saying that you would do something unsafe, but I think that you're going to take your capabilities all the way up to the, right up to the edge of their limitations to try to affect that. Correct. Because so. a body recovery would wait until daylight when it's not gusting at 35 miles an hour through a ravine and you're on NVGs and somebody's using a, a, the thermal camera to find something. You wait until daytime to recover. Right. Now- You've got a live person that just sat up on the edge of a cliff that's got severe injuries and you have an opportunity to save their life. Right. And that's exactly what happened. But now we were like, holy shit, he's still alive. And we know that he's clinging to life at this point. And, you know, just the extent of the injuries that you read when you started this is an example of we had an idea just looking at the distance. It ended up being 110 feet that he fell. And it was wow. almost completely vertical. So, holy cow. Now John and I are having this discussion like, man, okay, where am I going to put you? And we found a spot just forward of him where we could just put the left toe of the helicopter on. And it was extremely tight. It was literally like right up to our policy and our comfort level to get the thing in there. Um, the tail was going to be right next to a large boulder. Um, you know, so we're, like there's no air to, to, to let, allow the nose, the nose to yaw left and right. Um, you know, the blade clearance was, was super tight. I mean, it was, it was within our capability and our policy to do this rescue, but it was, it was tight. Um, yeah. so we discussed it and said, Hey, okay, I think I can go in there and you just watch the blades. You watch the tail. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to get the toe on this little section of rock. And then if we like it, you can go ahead and get out. We'll, we'll pull off and then we'll go from there. So that's what we did. So we went in there, John helped me get the toe on, on this little area of rock. Um, he was able to walk out, get onto it. We backed off and uh, he made contact with the, the first victim. And uh, I think at that point, let me, let me turn it over to John. And if you would if, feel free to back up and, you know, uh, John, if, if I gotta, I'm going to back up for a minute. So John, <laughs> you, when you, uh, when you're sitting in the helicopter and you watch, like, I, I know how the ICS system works and, and you're on uh, it's an intercommunication systems where all, everybody's on the same headset and we're all talking amongst each other. So John, you look out and everybody's talking, okay, it's a body recovery. Now this kid sits up you as the medic. What is going through your mind right now? Well, first off, I, I mean, it, it caught me by surprise because like Dave said, it's like, oh, this kid's, I mean, just his, the, the, the whole general demeanor of the situation, like this kid is dead. Like he looks yeah. gray, not moving. He's crumpled up in a, in a body position. That's not normal. He's dead. We're, that's just so, you know, we know what we're doing now. And now, now you're mentally like, okay, now we got to pull this 14 year old kid off the mountain and then he, right. you know, his gonna find out he's dead. So it's like, great. Awesome. Cool. And then all of a sudden he pops up and it's like, and it's like legit, like he pops up and it's like, you know, he's got like this surprise look in his face. And I was like, holy, legit. My first, I was like, holy shit, this kid's alive. You know? So it's like, all right. Wow. Okay. Um, we're like, you know, my thought process is like, okay, this kid potentially just fell over a hundred feet, you know, just judging from the train. Like Dave said, and at the time we didn't, we weren't hundred percent sure. We actually went back and looked at it the, a couple of days after and actually measured it out. So yeah, it was about 110 feet. I'm thinking, I was like, I don't, there's, I knew there was not much I'm going to do for this kid. There's not, you know, there's not, not a whole lot I can do in the field for this kid. Like what he needs is to be loaded up and he's to the hospital. There's just not much I can do for him. Right. It, at that point, it'd probably been 
probably a little over an hour since they've been out there. Um, wow. So, yeah. So, it, it, and, and, and I'll back up, you know, to kind of where it started. Um, we're in the hangar, like Dave said, it's after midnight. I'm bullshitting with the, uh, the HRT guys in the kitchen. Cause we'd actually, uh, we had a big cookout because we knew we'd had, we we're going to have a bunch of people there. So we made, we, you know, we, we wanted to pretend like we were firefighters. So we brought a bunch of food in, grilling steak. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's a dig on the firefighters or if that's just like a, but you know, we'll just, we'll I'm, I'm glad we can all get along. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm just jealous they get to get a home cooked meal every night. So anyway, so talking about who's going to clean up blah 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 and we've got a radio in the kitchen and i hear i hear the call go out I'm like wait a second what, what did they just say it was you know basically what dave said hey we had two two kids out at uh, fossil mountain one fell about 30 feet the other one's on the phone calling blah 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 so i'm like okay i get I, you know i get on the radio talk to dispatch it's legitimate because we get these calls all the time and it's like oh no they they fell three feet and they rolled their ankle and they're actually walking out on the trail we right. really confirm this this is a legitimate thing and and because of the weather and the potential time time lapse we're like no this we need to get this done like now um like dave was saying you know it, we were staged it was myself um and i actually had our tac docs at the hangar with us so i had the doctors there so i go in the the conference room we're all hanging out I'm like hey we've got a rescue out at fossil mountain does anybody want to go and doc seibel ross he's like hey yeah no we're, we're sitting around not doing anything i'll go with you again because i was thinking okay the extent of injuries could be could be fairly large it'd be nice to have the doc there so that if we need to bring yeah. him out or to the doc we've got that right there so um he and sergeant leblanc they jump in his truck they drive out we jump in the back of uh the 530 and we take off they're scrambling uh blue diamond is a very small town um on the outskirts of las vegas it's very close-knit um, so Mike Ward, the, one of the volunteers you mentioned, he actually lives in Blue Diamond. So to not confuse it too much, the kids have their, their, their incident. The one kid calls his parents says, Hey, so-and-so fell. We, I need help. So his parents go to Mike's house. Cause they know Mike's a climber. Like, Hey, our son fell. Can you help us? And they also knew he was a volunteer with us. He's like, absolutely. So nice. he, he, he responded, we didn't even call him. He just responded out there. Oh, that's cool. It's um, great yeah, so when you get the community like that to come together too. It, you know, go to a neighbor house and make, oh, they the boys need help. Can you help out? And they, oh, yeah. heck yeah, let's go. Cool. Yeah, so so we had that. So um, so we're en route. Um, Care flight was out there. You know, the the air ambulance. We could see them. They're they're also doing a little bit of search for us. Anyways, they land in the in the at the CP the command post. Um, Chuck, the resident officer. Uh, he's so he's a police officer with Metro, but the resident guys work in the outskirts. So he's the, he's the officer out there on the ground with the thermal. Uh, he talks us in. So we land, you know, with, you know, everything that Dave said, we get, I get out and I go right to the kid. I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I'm like, I needed, I need to figure out what's going on here. So I go right to him and he, he's actually awake and alert ish. He, he knows where he's at. He knows something happened. He just does not, he's not hundred percent sure. Gotcha. Like I said, he's, he's just crumpled up. Like he just, yeah. he looked like a ball of goo. I'm like, okay. All right. Side note real quick. I, I have a question. You show up to the kid. Are, what are you, are headlamps or what, what are you using for light? Yeah, we're, we're white kid? light. You know, yeah, we're white light in this scenario. Um, you know, in all the rescue scenarios, we're not, we're not working on NVGs. It's all headlamps and um, yeah. white. Light. There's nothing, nothing, you know, we're not trying to be sneaky Pete with it or, right. or, or trying. There's no, 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 no. I'm just asking for like how when you're assessing yeah. this page is is the helicopter giving you light as well or is it just you and your headlamp and or flashlight I think at that point i'd probably ask dave to back off just because of the rotor wash right it was, it was too loud and it's just creating that much more wind yeah um but they have a spotlight there i'm sure I, i'm sure they were lighting it up for me i don't i don't recall it um but you know we're in the zone I'm, I'm, sick yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the <laughs> headlamp so so I'm talking to him, try, just, just, just trying to get a general assessment. Because again, he's talking to me. He's like, okay, well, hey, man, he's talking to me. I'm going to talk to him. You know, he's, he's, he's breathing on his own. He's kind of tracking. He said, yeah, the helicopter woke me up. He's like, okay, so he knows there's a helicopter out here. So as I'm talking to him, I hear another voice. I'm like, hey, I need help. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> so I get up. I walk around the corner, and his friend, who we thought was at the top, was actually crumpled up next to him five yards away. He also fell. We had no clue. Oh. We had no idea. There. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
So immediately I'm like, holy shit, what like this? So this goes from bad to really bad now. It's like, okay, I'm by myself. I have two patients who fell over a hundred feet. They're both awake and alert for them, you know, for, for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so immediately I'm like, I, I jump on the radio today. I'm like, Hey, I've got two patients. I need whatever I can get. Whoever's at the CP, send them because we need to get these kids out of here. So the exposure wow. was. Hey, can yeah. I jump in here for a second too? So, so uh, we we had we had pulled away and we you know backed off to where we're hovering offset now and we're you know trying to like you said not not kill him with the noise and everything and so all we know is that we put him out and he made contact and we're letting him do his assessment trying to give him some time and then when he gets on the radio he says hey you know i've got the first kid down here you know he gives us a quick rundown on on his extent of injuries and then he says oh and by the way i got the second kid back here he's behind a boulder he fell too and both me and my co-pilot Dave Brooke looks at each other and we're like, what did he say? So I got on the radio. I'm like, what did you say? The second, you've got a second victim. He goes, yeah, the other kid's down here. He fell too. So now right away, Brooks and I are thinking, well, then who the hell is at the top of this mountain running around with a flashlight? Is that, yeah, that's, the dude that, oh. that's not the, that's not the kid that called in. They're both now down there on the ground. And John, you know, phenomenal job. He starts rattling off. He's like, I need this, 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 this. I'm going to need more people. I'm going to need gear. I'm going to need litters. I'm going to, you know, it starts giving us all this gear. And, you know, we're taking inventory. And basically, Brooks is trying to make a plan, you know, with Sergeant LeBlanc to get all this stuff up to John. But I'll just vividly remember when he said that on the radio, I was shocked. I'm like, there's, we must have misheard what he said. And then, (laughs) nope, they're, they're, the other kids back there behind a boulder too, just as hurt. Jeez, oh, man. Yeah. yeah. All right, John. Yeah, take so, it up, man. So, so okay. So the, the first kid I made contact with, he was our initial patient. Okay. He was the one who, who the first fell. The second kid I'm talking to, he's actually very alert. He, he's like, yeah, I was on the phone with you. I called. He's like, but I, I got too close to the edge and I fell. Um, so he's, his pain level is he's, he's aware of his pain level, but it's manageable for him. Okay. Again, it's so cold. And it's, they've been now been out there for well over an hour. It's like, I, I just, these kids need to go. I'm getting them out. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm not doing any, it, there's no interventions I'm going to do about here that's going to help these kids. So Agreed. Um, I made the call for the, for a litter. Um, Cause I knew we only had one truck. So I was like, okay, we only have one litter. So send me the litter, send me two uh, wiggy bags or sleeping bags that are, you know, are, have ports in them for, for uh, assessments, send me the sleeping bags so I can nothing else, get these kids somewhat warm and get them out of here. So uh, Dave, uh, well, then I'll pass off to Dave because at that point he's going to go back over to the CP, which is just on the other side of the mountain, and that's where he'll pick up our, our volunteers and the equipment. So at this point, John, you're staying with the patients to triage, treat, and get ready to package. Uh, you're just treating all the wounds that you can see right there. After you radio out, Dave, and you're, you're about to take off to go get the rest of the gear that John needs. Yeah, that's correct. So we relayed all the information from John to the guys on the ground, and then um, they started prepping all the equipment that we were going to need to insert with additional people. And we agreed them as well, telling them, you know, hey, it's tight. It's a tow-in. You know, it's going to be a little bit challenging for you guys to get the gear offloaded and and onto this this shelf because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a super big area even for John to kind of work in. So um, they set up a, a command post in, um, it was like a park with some baseball fields in the little town of Blue Diamond. So we would wrap around the backside of the mountain land and, and pick up people and gear and inserted basically what, what John needed. I, I can't remember how many people, I think you had at least probably four, four people up there with you. Um, well, at least three, four, including yourself, um, if I remember right. And then uh, we were also coordinating the, like John said, when we first arrived, the flight for life guy was, was orbiting up really high, kind of above the train. And it told me, he's like, yeah. hey, you know, I, I tried to get a little lower, but it's really nasty. So he was up really high just with his spotlight, just trying to see if he could see anything on the side of the mountain. So they were able to go land offsite in a, in a secure area as well. And they were ready to receive these kids once we were hopefully able to get them out. So yeah, all that stuff was, was being coordinated while John was still up there by himself. But eventually, yeah, we were able to start getting people in gear. And, and then we also started having a discussion about where would we be able to load them from? 
because the original place that we had picked was okay to get our guys in and out, but they wouldn't be able to load a litter from there. So John had picked, and, and you can talk about this later, but a, a spot that was, that was probably even tighter um, to, to try to get a toe in as well and eventually be able to, for them to have solid rock to stand on to load the litter. So that was actually another um, interesting thing that they had to figure out on the ground. But yeah, so we started at that point shuttling people and gear in to John. And, uh, so how many how many people did you bring over to help John? I want to say there's three additional bodies, I think. And then uh, yeah, you brought then, uh, he, you brought Mike Ward and Josh Tully over. Um, I know LeBlanc stayed um, to receive, and then uh, actually Chuck Eaton, the resident officer, he wound up climbing up to me to help because he I, he I've worked with Chuck. He knows he knows me, and I think he heard the tone of my voice and knew that yeah I, I'm I'm gonna go up there and help because Chuck is. Chuck, he's a great dude, and he would uh, he'd give you the shirt off his back. So if he can do it, he's going to do it. And, he, he, you know, he's kind of broken. He's got some physical injuries that he's, he's dealt with, and he just kind of pushed through it. And like I said, he's a, he's a patrol guy. That's what he does. But That's he, awesome. He above and beyond and came up to, to help, and I'm glad he did because it was, yeah, <laughs> it was a little sketchy. Wow. Wow. Awesome. All right, keep rolling, man. I'm, I'm digging this. I'm digging this. So, what, what do we right, got? So- so uh, Dave brings me the volunteers, uh, uh, Mike Ward and Josh Telly. So obviously my, my the, with the triage in mind, you know, the first kid, our initial patient, he's going first. I you just, just, like I said, you, you could just look at him. You can tell he's sick. So, um, so we load him in the sleeping bag, throw him in the litter. Uh, kind of what Dave said, you know, the, the tow in was not going to work to load a litter, but just, we can't do that. So um what I based what I had him do is I moved the initial patient because he was he was basically on the, the edge of a of another drop. So if he would have gone another two or three feet, he would have dropped another 30 feet. So I actually pushed him back towards the face, towards the boulder that the second patient was behind to make room so that the 500 Dave could bring the 500 and put a solid one skin. It's like it's like we gotta have a solid one skin into load of litter. It's like we're not gonna be able to do it on a towing. So so we were able to, we were able to get manage that. Instead of my sergeant, Crystal Blanc, he stayed in the back to receive. So we don't want, you know, we're not going to load a litter in, a, in an empty ship. Um, we got uh, our first victim loaded up, um, you know, and, and we made the decision, hey, he's going, he's going to go by air. We're going to put him in the back of the 500. He's going to get shipped over to care flight and they're going to, they're going to take him. He's, you know, he's the, he's the worst of the two. So, um, hey, so hey. go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. So, between uh, the four of us, um, we were able to get the first patient into the litter. Um, we get it loaded. Dave comes in, uh, comes back in. I show him the spot. He's able to get the, the, the ship nice and tight. Like I said, it, it was tight because we had that boulder just off the, the face. So Dave's now got to, you know, he's got to manage that boulder, even though he's getting the solid one skid. Now he's got this giant boulder that's right next to the ship. So again, you know, wow. he did a great job. Flying, you know, flying that ship, you know, those guys fly that ship on patrol all the time. So they have a really good control of it. But I mean, the, the mountain stuff is a whole different beast, but um, you know, he comes in, puts the skin down. We're able to get the first patient in, um, but now they have our only litter. So they go take our first patient over to care flight. Again, our doc is Ross. He's hanging out over there. So as they're, as they're doing the crossover, he kind of does a little bit of an assessment just to help the flight nurse, you know, with whatever they need. Um, but quickly they need to put the litter back in the ship and bring it back to us. So that happens, you know, while they're doing this in transit stuff, we're able to get the second, uh, second patient loaded in a sleeping bag and, uh, uh, same thing. I'm not doing much for them. Um, and they come back, get the litter out. We put them right in the litter. They back off for a minute just so we can get them packaged. They come back in, we put them in the, uh, in the back of the 500 and then they fly him to back over to now a ground ambulance and uh, they transport him by a ground to UMC. Holy cow. All right. So as soon as the patients are gone now, nobody's in the aircraft with you. Is other Dave, there's no medical personnel. They loaded the patient and then so it was you and the patients in the back and you're just flying out. Is that right? So I had uh, Sergeant LeBlanc was in the back receiving that litter each time. In the back of the aircraft. Then, okay. Yeah, so then, he's you know, medically trained. In, okay. Yeah. And then Got uh, it. the whole time I had Dave Brooks with me as my co-pilot. Since we're flying on night vision goggles, everything at night, we always have a co-pilot in case the, the, you know, the PIC has a goggle failure. So there's always another pilot in there. So yeah, I had those, those two guys with me. And then um, once, uh, once we 
landed the second time and offloaded the second victim. Uh, the Blanc got out at that point, so I could come in and start getting the rest of these guys and gear out. Yeah. And one thing I will say, John's being pretty humble when he's talking about loading these kids in those litters because the the nature of the way that terrain was, it, that wasn't like a normal solid one skid. Like normally come in, put the skid on a rock or something solid and directly underneath like where the rotor head is. And that's also yeah. just happens to be basically right in line with the back of where they would load and offload and get in and out. Uh, so it's really solid. Well, in this case, it still was a lot more of just kind of a toe-in. It was on rock, but the, the skid that they were trying to deal with loading the litter over was off the ground. I mean, a considerable distance. And they also didn't have a lot of room because it was we, – we couldn't come in because that boulder next to the tail, we couldn't come in and put the whole skid on the rock. So we had to be canted at like a, a little bit of a 45-degree angle. That's why we only had like a, like the front portion of the toe on there. But then the way that the train kind of dropped down, you know, the, the place where they were standing in this tight little area was the skid wasn't on the ground. So they were having to lift that litter up even higher than normal. They couldn't Holy step cow. on the skid to like they normally would to support themselves to lift the litter up or else they're going to be rocking the helicopter really bad. So they did a phenomenal job, just, you know, sheer brute strength, but also finesse to, to lift that thing up, set it gently in the back help LeBlanc slide it inside and, and get a, a, you know, a strength attached to it without knocking us all over the place in these high winds, you know, to where we would pop off the rock and, you know, potentially knock one of them off and, you know, hurt or kill somebody. So to me, that was one of the most impressive things was these guys able to do that because that was not, that wasn't easy. Like normally we, if we could come in and have a whole nice area to plant that thing down and hold it nice and steady for them, you know, they're smooth yeah. and, and it, it, it goes off without a hitch, but they were able to still do that with that same level of extra peace and skill under those nasty conditions. So yeah, I, I was super. Holy impressed. cow. <laughs> Dude. What, what was that? Just a straight up like press overhead to get that litter up there, John, or what? Well, we had four guys lifting it. So that helped. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it sounds so cliche, but in the moment you're not even thinking about it. It's like, I was, it's like, let's just get this done so we can, so we can all go home. So it's like, just, you know, it, it probably helped. There were 14 year old kids. <laughs> They're a little, yeah, they're a little, okay. It's not lifting a full grown man. <laughs> so, holy cow. All right. So, now just out of curiosity, and again, for me being the rescue side of the house and the crew member, you know, I know when I'm done with something like that, especially if I have to leave the patient on scene, it's kind of a sit back after the last patient goes and you're like, woo, come on, baby. <laughs> and that's the time to like regroup for a second. What went through your head after those kids are like, Dave's taken off with the last kid and, and he's gone. What is going through your mind right now? I'm glad that's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. You know, cause we, you know, the discussion was had, it's super windy, you know, this is it's not ideal conditions. Um, they're banged up, you know, it, it was legitimately like, you know, holy shit. I'm glad that's done. I'm going to just sit here for a minute and just turn my lights off and just sit in the dark for a minute and just kind of decompress. And um, yeah. You know, because uh, it, it's that, like I said earlier, you know, we get these calls like, oh, yeah, I'm hurt. I'm lost, blah, 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 blah. It, you don't want to say everything. There's anything routine in rescue, but we get those calls at a time where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off trail or I rolled my ankle. I can't finish. I was like, all right, so we fly out, load them up and, we're, and we get them out, you know, just kind of real, real yeah. quick, run of the mill type deal. And there's, you know, there's really only a handful of rescues that, that pop up in my, my mind over the eight years I've done this. And I, I, I literally know without us that person would have died. Like I just, I, you know, hands down. So, and this is obviously one of them, like those, those, one, yeah. if those kids would have been dead if we didn't find them that night, just, just from oh, the, absolutely. your exposure alone. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was, it was definitely a kind of, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to sit on this rock. I'm going to turn my lights off. I'm going to turn my radio off for a second and just kind of, I'm just going to, I'm going to breathe it all in. <laughs> so. <laughs> Holy cow. Now, Dave, when you uh, land at the base, you're landing at the baseball field, you said to offload these kids, yeah. it, like you got to have this sigh of relief when the kid now gets transferred to the next aircraft and you know, they're on the way to the hospital to get advanced care. Yeah. My biggest thing, I was just hoping that they survived, you know, uh, cause that it was in the back of my mind. And I think everybody's that, you know, it's possible that they could still not survive just because of, 
you know, just how far they fell and how bad they were busted up. But like John said, the fact that they were talking and they were somewhat alert and, and not completely altered was, was, um, it was good. It was a good sign. Um, yeah. so yeah, my, that was just in the back of my head. I'm like, man, I just, I hope these kids both survive, you know, after, yeah. after what they went through and, um, you know, what, what our guys did to get them out, you know, and we, we got them to hospital as quickly as we could, you know? Um, so that was kind of in the back of my mind. And then, you know, it's funny, like after we landed and set them down or set down the second time and offloaded the second victim, um, like for me, I, at that point, I'm not done. You know, I can't put my guard down and take a deep breath. Cause now right. I gotta fly in there and go get all these guys in the gear, you know? And, uh, yeah. that definitely was, was, uh, one of the more challenging, uh, ones kids to, to put people in and out of for me, you know? Um, so once we got everybody out and then we were flying back, um, I might even have had Brooks fly us back. I You know, uh, but wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was a good feeling on that, that like John said, um, you know, not every rescue is like that. They're not always, you know, these, these crazy uh, life threatening injuries where somebody right. died if you wouldn't have gotten out. So as much as we hate going on calls like that, it's great to get somebody out and then make a difference to where they do survive. So, um, you know, to, to have that one and then also get to go with John, which coincidentally, I've had two that were, that were crazy like that. And the other one was also with John to where same thing, the lady would have died. If, um, so you, you yeah. two together are, are just, yeah. Glutton for SAR. I love it. SAR dogs. I, yeah. Something like that. I don't know. but I guess I'm glad he's retired because I don't have to deal with all that anymore, but <laughs> I do, I do miss it. So, <laughs> so, uh, so man, I, I don't even know that that's awesome. Man, good for you guys. You you know, two lives saved straight up. Well done, John. Well done, Dave. Yeah, it's it, like I said, we 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 we. Those those are the ones that are that that they make a memory. You know, the cool thing is, you know, again, Doc McNichol, Allison, she she's one of our volunteers. So it was like we had a direct line of information. I actually reached out to her as soon as I got back to the hangar. Um, the uh, I actually. You know, I went to the hospital the following day because I was like, you know, this, this, this is a this is a big one. I'd like to get some follow up. And I went, I got to meet the parents yeah. and all that good stuff. Obviously, super appreciative. Um, uh, and then actually to this day, I still keep wow. in contact with the family, um, you know, just here and there just to say, you know, check in, see how things are going and, and then all that good stuff. So uh, it's cool. I, those, oh, those, man, those, that these is are the ones awesome. That, yeah, because that does not happen very often, especially in like in the world that we are in with rescue you get them, you get the victims, you get the patients, you bring them over to the hospital or wherever you drop them off. And that's the last you ever hear of them. You, you hope they make it. You hope they go on to bigger and better lives. But I, I've only met uh, probably three or four people ever again after we rescued them. And, and we've done a lot. So yeah, these wow, that, that's awesome. There are uh, our public information office at, at Metro set up a, a meeting for them to come meet us at the hangar and everybody involved in the rescue came out and they came down and they actually gave us these really cool, um, uh, what are they called? John, help me. I'm having a brain. Part of it. They're like big thermoses and super nice uh, thermoses. Yeah. Kind of like wow. a Yeti type, uh, thermos. Um, and it had, um, the, the one family's son's name and the date etched on it. And it said, uh, I, I think it says like, I, I believe in miracles because I helped create one Boston mountain and it has the date on it, which is awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. That's something that's like uh, very, very atypical. I think for anybody who would say yeah. rescue industry, we actually get to meet, meet the family and, and, you know, see the person completely recovered. And um, yeah, that you can't put a price tag on that, obviously. So that was cool. Wow. Yeah. And wow. to piggyback on that, both the kids have made a full recovery and um, you know, I, I'm sure there's some, some mental scarring that's going to, will always be there uh, because of it. But um, physically they're both, they're both like never happened. <laughs> Pays to be young. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I guess so. Cause I don't know if I would have survived that now. Jeez. Yeah. I stubbed my toe in the hospital. Right. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. Too late. I'll fill out your hurt feelings report and uh, send it over to Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Right in the round file. Man. Holy cow. Well, that's it. That's well, that is awesome. I uh, mean, thank you guys for sharing that. That is incredible. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you what, we can do one of two things. You guys could continue and tell me another story or we can sign off or you actually, let me rephrase that. You guys can tell me another story if you want, or the floor is yours and you can say whatever you want. Give somebody a piece of advice, a little tip and trick, you know, it's up to you guys. I'd say uh, we're, we're, happy with you, Dave. And we're, we're happy to do, we're happy to come back and do another one with you, man. Some other time. Uh, I'd do that. We could do yeah. another one. We're just like hanging uh, out. Be with awesome. you, hey, thanks man. I like hanging out with you guys too. Come on. Maybe we could do it in person <laughs> next time. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Yeah. Let me get on that side of the world first. All right. All right. <laughs> come back to the U S you know what? I'll tell you what, in that case, let's do this. Let's um, we're going to call this, uh, the end of this case, because uh, man, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from this one. This is a, you guys did an amazing job. Uh, Dave, you're flying just from what you're saying is amazing. John, the treatment, the care, well done, two lives saved. And it, it would, they wouldn't have survived had you guys not been there and done what you did. So good job. Thanks. Hats off. Thanks buddy. You're welcome. On that, uh, we are out of here. So thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and as my daughters like to tell me all the time, like and subscribe. Oh yeah, I appreciate it. So I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story and would be willing to share it, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else here that we talk about, please, Send me an email at therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. Or you can also check us out on our Instagram page at therealrescue. And that's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. And for all of you standing the watch today, remember when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, stay safe out there, everybody.